Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive at the RSA, and I'd like to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. Uh, I'm delighted to have the chance to talk to someone I've spoken to on many occasions over the years, Ian Golden. Ian's Professor of Globalisation and Development at Oxford University. He was formerly founding director of the Oxford Martin School and prior to that, vice president of the World Bank. Ian has researched and written widely on globalisation, inequality, climate change, global governance, um, and much of his work is on the relationship between globalisation and systemic risk. And I, I can attest to that because I heard you talking about that stuff before the pandemic. You're not someone who's popped up and said, I always knew it was happening. You were talking about it years ago. So you've talked about pandemics, financial meltdown, environmental disaster. So all of that work is now terribly relevant. So, uh, Ian, thank you for joining us. Just before we get into this, uh, how is this pandemic affecting you personally? How are you? Is How are things around you? Well, thank you, Matthew, and thank you for inviting me to participate uh, with you in this podcast and uh, broadcast. Uh, I'm fine. Uh, we're very fortunate to have a house in Oxford on with with a garden and uh, have the space. And as an academic, I'm quite used to working at home. Uh, so the disruption hasn't been as great as it has been for many people who are finding themselves uh, in confined spaces, uh, normally going to work and having to be at home. And we, our kids have grown up, so we don't have kids at home either. But thank you for asking and uh, all is well under the circumstances. It's one of the things, isn't it, about this time that people's experiences of it are so very different depending on their resources and their jobs. I was talking to, to Jeff Mulgan, I'm sure you know very well, uh, yesterday, and uh, he, he was admitting with a little bit of kind of, he felt, he felt rather guilty that, you know, he's at home and he's got a garden, he was planting vegetables, he quite enjoys being on his own, he doesn't run an organisation anymore. He said he was finding it almost idyllic. But, you know, then you think about somebody who's got two or three, four children in a house with not enough bedrooms even for the children, possibly not good Wi-Fi, you know, that so... You know, it, I think one of the things about this crisis is it's getting us to think a bit more deeply than we normally do about the very different circumstances people live in. Anyway. Uh, absolutely. And, and not only within our country, and it's absolutely true within the UK, but globally as well. You know, I've been following what's been going on in South Africa, for example, telling people to self-isolate when they share a single bedroom shack with six other people and have to go in a crowded commuting transport to work uh, just doesn't make sense. Now, you get acutely aware, don't you, of how some messages just don't yeah. work. They make assumptions. Yeah. Well, um, let's turn to your particular field um, of expertise, globalisation and global equality and, and governance. Now, you wrote a book, uh, The Butterfly Defect. Um, and of all your work, that seemed to be the one that's kind of most particularly relevant to this. You predicted systemic weaknesses like susceptibility uh, to pandemic, uh, to, to pandemics. Uh, how does the current state of global? How how does this crisis can illuminate the current state of globalization? I think it is absolutely uh, what we feared would happen. Those of us that have worked on systemic risk, it's in the butterfly defect, and in in my BBC series after the crash and elsewhere, I have been predicting that a pandemic of this nature would lead to the next global meltdown, uh, that it was inevitable. And I think it it's really a, a massive wake-up call. Hopefully, uh, although many of us that were worried about this were seem to be 
singing in the wilderness, uh, this would be taken seriously now. And it's really the underbelly of globalization, hyperconnectivity, progress. Uh, globalization has been an immensely progressive force. It's brought more progress in terms of poverty eradication, jobs, higher incomes, longer life expectancies for more people around the world than anything in history has ever done over a quicker period of time. But it has this endemic uh, absolute dimension to it, which cannot be removed, which it also increases risks because hyperconnectivity also leads to hyperinterdependence. It also leads uh, to cascading risks. And we can't have major airport hubs, for example, that spread the goods of globalization, travel, tourism, etc., business travel, without them also super spreading pandemics. We can't have financial centers without them super spreading cascading financial crises, cyber centers without them spreading viruses. And then the spillovers like climate change, like antibiotic resistance, as more and more people are able to do these things, uh, the externalities, the spillovers get greater. And it's the failure to manage those rather than the fact that they're inevitable, which I think is the problem. Because reading uh, around this crisis, you become more and more aware of how many people, not just yourself, but a whole number of people predicted this danger um, in you know United Nations reports and, and other things and, and argued, and of course this is an argument we recognise particularly from the kind of climate change debate, that if we could invest a few billion dollars around the world in particular systems, we could then save tens of billions, trillions of dollars, and nobody listened, did they? No one listened. And as you say, many have been argued. When you see the reports of intelligence agencies, which are publicly available, like the Canadians, for example, uh, you see the pandemic risk right up in the top right-hand quadrant of high probability, uh, very high impact risks, much greater than war and all the other things that we devote thousands of times more resources and attention to uh, than pandemics. And this disconnect between the level of the risk and the attention paid to it, both at the national and at the international level, I think uh, is startling. There are many reasons for it, I think. One is that just like uh, in the build-up to the financial crisis, there's been a complacency. Uh, we've had rising life expectancy. We haven't had a major pandemic of this nature since 1918. It's built a sort of confidence we know how to manage them. We had SARS, uh, we had Ebola, we had avian influenza, uh, but all of them were contained. Uh, and I think it's led to a complacency at the national level. Uh, it's also a long-term threat like climate change. So I think each government, which is short-term, thinks, well, this might happen, but it's not going to happen on my watch. So we, we'll rather spend money on things that will be politically more convenient uh, for us. And at the international level, of course, uh, what's been startling about this is not only that the UN is missing in action, uh, but the WHO, which is the organization which was built for public health at the global level, exactly to stop this sort of thing, has been starved of the resources authority, much needed reforms uh, that it needs, not least by, I don't blame the director general and staff of the WHO. They are simply staffers. We need to blame our governments who have deliberately uh, allowed these institutions, which are designed to safeguard us at the uh, international level, they've allowed them to wither. Pandemic are 
highly unusual, uh, and I can't think of another global threat which is equivalent, in that you really do need all countries in the world to participate. Uh, this one came from China, but it could have equally come from you know, a thousand other cities around the world. The poorest countries are often the greatest threat. And with new evolving pandemics, which are going to uh, possibly come from people synthesizing a pandemic and putting on a drone, they can come from rich countries as well. Uh, and so what we we see with pandemics, and this is very different to climate change, where a couple of dozen countries could actually solve 95% of the problem, um, where in finance, it's really only a dozen financial centers, which can stop global systemic risk. Uh, pandemics, you really do need global participation. But that doesn't mean that every country in the world needs the same capacity and the same resource attribution. The rich countries could sort this out by building an effective WHO and agreeing uh, with the poor countries um, that they'll have a NATO-type response force and that can be done. This is not beyond the capabilities, but what we've seen is the turning back uh, on globalization, the U.S. response to this has been exactly the wrong response, both at the national level and at the global level, but it's not only the US. The WHO is an international body which has been starved by everyone. So, uh, Ian, let me try a kind of structural kind of interpretation of, of this on you. So, um, uh, I've often used the concept that I think Avner Offer, who uh, is an economist, economic historian, uses. He, he uses the concept of commitment devices. And what he means by commitment device is it's a device that we use to help us overcome our natural human tendencies. So things like marriage or limitations on credit uh, or church attendance. These are all things that kind of help us not just succumb to our kind of animal appetites or our cognitive frailties. So it seems to me the story you're telling me here is that there are two human reasons why it's hard for us to prepare for pandemics. The first is a kind of collective action problem, which is we've all got to contribute to this. We've all got to do it together. And so there's a, a temptation for countries, and it's a particularly um, kind of blameworthy when it's rich countries, but countries say, well, why should I invest in this? What, you know, why should I take the lead on this? You know, it's everyone else's problem. So you've got a collective action problem. And then you've got a kind of temporal problem, which is that we as human beings focus on the short term. We focus on things we can see. We don't focus on the long term and things which may or may not happen. So these are just how we're hardwired. We are hardwired for these to be challenges for us. But that's why we create institutions. These are the commitment devices, because the institutions are the things where the rules are that we're going to overcome those kind of frailties. We're going to act collectively and we're going to act in the long term. So what you have here is a story of human frailty not being counteracted by institutional capacity. Would that, is that a summary in of, of, of what you're saying? I think that's right and uh, absolutely right. And I would add two other dimensions of, of these commitment mechanisms, uh, which I think we've learned through this and hopefully we will do differently in, in, in the future. The first is that what this has really demonstrated is that when trouble brews, we need the state. Uh, and uh, we need strong states, which means we have to pay our taxes to build those states and give them the authority uh, and resources. And, and clearly, countries with strong safety nets, strong health services are going to do much better than countries where they don't have that. Uh, and I think like after the Second World War, 
led to the creation of the welfare state. I think we're going to see that sort of commitment that actually we do believe in states and that the liberalization processes, which, um, you know, Thatcher, Reagan and, and, and after uh, are going to be seen to have this crucial weakness that they undermine the state. Uh, and, and we've also seen an absolute uh, sea change in economic policy. Uh, what, 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 what seemed insane uh, to orthodox economists a month ago now is mainstream. Central banks are saying it in terms of levels of debt, of monetary policy, of other interventions. So those are big changes. And the other thing I think is regarding we blame threats on foreigners and on foreign things. We think of threats as a foreign body. And so the instinct is if we can build a higher wall and insulate ourselves and protect ourselves, are we going to be immune from that threat? And I think what this is demonstrating graphically, and it's true of all the biggest threats that we face, whether it's climate change, antibiotic resistance, uh, or others, that actually high walls uh, don't, aren't the answer. Uh, they keep out not only the ideas, the technologies, the jobs, the economic growth that we need, but what they really keep out is this ability to cooperate we need to have in order to resolve the threat. So I think what we'll see coming out of this is, is as you say, uh, new commitment mechanisms. And I hope that it's on these other two dimensions as well. So let, let's talk about, about change now, uh, Ian. So... Um... At the RSA, we're, we're using this a phrase to describe all the work we're doing during this crisis, which we describe as building bridges to the future. And here what we're trying to do is to link the things that need to be done now to things which then need to happen, structural shifts that we then need uh, after the crisis has, has passed. Now, that's led us to think quite a lot about the conditions uh, for change. And to give you just one obvious kind of contrast, why was it that the AIDS... Uh, uh, epidemic did lead to fundamental change, uh, both in terms of the investment that was necessary in finding a cure, it's no longer even a kind of chronic condition, but also to uh, tackling discrimination and legal disadvantage for the gay and lesbian community. And so you can see that crisis leading to change. Then let's contrast it with 2008. And I'm sure uh, you were one of the people I was after 2000, you know, 2007, 2008, who was saying, well, this is bound to lead to change. This is bound, it exposes the problems of financial globalisation, problems of inequality, uh, etc., lack of kind of coordination of regulatory regimes, etc. And it didn't really happen. Indeed, things got worse. And, you know, my analysis, or our analysis, is that in a sense, what you need is three conditions for change. The first is there has to be an underlying story. You know, the case for change never happens just in the crisis. There already was an argument. There already was a reason to change. Then the crisis accelerates that. It reinforces those arguments and really brings them to people's attention, changes public views, changes the political possibilities. But then thirdly and critically, and it seems to me this was what was wrong after 2008. You need political alliances. You need a broad-based political alliance for sub and you need concrete policy ideas which you can actually implement. It's no good having ideas that will take years. You've got to be ready. Because at the moment, the one thing we can be sure of in terms of this crisis is that the go government intervention is going to lead to an asset bubble and government debt is going to lead to demand for austerity. So, you know, the things that feel certain coming out of this are not the things which possibly you or I would want to see come out of it. So tell me 
what your view is of what could and should happen as a consequence of this crisis in terms of your areas of expertise? I think your analysis is right. And the bridges to the future um, metaphor, I think, is, is, is a great one to build on. And it's not just bridges to the future, but to get a bridge to the future, it's going to have to be a global bridge as well. And there's bridges to other countries, to other communities. It's solidarity. And more than anything, what this is showing remarkably is solidarity between young people and old people in countries where young people who basically at very low risk are sacrificing their freedoms and their economy and they're taking on huge future debts uh, to safeguard uh, principally elderly people. So this is a, a, a real restructuring of solid and, 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 and heartening solidarity uh, within uh, our countries. I think what you uh, point to is, is absolutely right, uh, that we're going to have to see uh, not only the dimensions that you've indicated, uh, but broader ones. And in my mind, the question is, you know, you, you, you say about the sort of inevitability of austerity. The question is, are we in the First World War or the Second World War? Uh, and the First World War, as we know, uh, with terrible leadership led to downward spirals, austerity, uh, very bad leadership, punishing uh, the sources of, of threat that were seen to be the source of threat, the Great Depression, the rise of fascism, the Second World War. Uh, whereas the Second World War was a much more hopeful uh, historical reference with the Bretton Woods institutions, the United Nations, the Marshall Plan, uh, the creation of the social welfare state, and a fundamentally different outcome that was then, of course, overtaken um, in the end by the Cold War and, and uh, the swing in the pendulum uh, back to the market dramatically with Thatcher and Reagan. But it can go either way. And uh, in the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations, which Pascal Lamy actually chaired for us, it's, it's on our website, we look at, as you have done, why have some things been successful and other things failed? And we also look at the HIV AIDS, but the close of the ozone layer, uh, and there have been many other great success stories that one needs to take inspiration from. And I think it does come down to the fact, as you point, it's about coalitions of the working, developing uh, an alliance and, uh, and moving forward and not allowing the lack of unanimity to stop them uh, around that. I think what's also crucial is winning over or defeating, and that might require active action, the lobbies, the very powerful lobbies that have a vested interest uh, in the continuation of business as usual. In the case of HIV AIDS, it was some of the pharmaceutical companies that really did not want to uh, open access and cheapen uh, the treatments. Uh, that required a massive global protest and was really when it started hitting some very wealthy celebrities uh, and stars that consciousness raised dramatically around that. But millions of people were killed before that happened uh, by it. Uh, and of course... In, in the financial crisis, the, the banks were in the kitchen writing the legislation how to stop the next, uh, with their lobbyists and lawyers, on how to stop the next financial crisis. Massive conflicts of interest and lobbying power, uh, which uh, I believe uh, stymied much needed reforms. And I don't think that the financial sector is much safer, uh, partly because it's failing to look at these cross-sectoral systemic risks. You know, I've had many, many arguments with people in finance saying, don't worry about how big a bank is, worry about 
what concentration risk as well. So would you rather have your money in a bank that has distribution of assets and life and people and memory around the world? Or would you like lots of banks on the same high street, uh, which would make you feel safer? And I think what Hurricane Sandy and 9-11 and this pandemic are showing us is that geographical concentration risk is something we need to worry tremendously about. Uh, But that wasn't on any financial reform, stopping the next financial crisis agenda. And it's just an illustration of the siloed thinking, which I think also prevents us dealing with these systemic risks. How important do you think in all of this, Ian, is the concept of resilience? I mean, a few years ago, there was a lot of talk of resilience. And I think Rockefeller put a lot of money into building a network of, of resilient cities, and there were resilience officers in those cities. But it feels as though that kind of ironically or tragically that agenda has slightly run out of steam but perhaps the idea of resilience can come again and because we know don't we that societies with reasonably strong governments governments also with strong legitimacy are more resilient we can see this in South Korea for example where governments that are kind of trusted by their citizens are then allowed to to go further in terms of collecting data and things like that because citizens can trust where they're coming from and they've seen their competence you know, we know um, that, that societies that are less unequal are more uh, resilient. We know that societies that invest more in the long term are more resilient in their infrastructure. So do you think that resilience could be the key concept that w- with which we could kind of, you know, change the, change the narrative? If we say, look, governments have an absolute, just like they do a responsibility to their armed forces, a responsibility to balance the books, a responsibility for welfare, they also have a responsibility for resilience. Absolutely. And a key conclusion of, of, of the butterfly defect is, is, is the need to focus on this. But it's a slippery concept, uh, resilience. I mean, it, 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 when you start... That's why it went out of fashion. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It, 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 it's a bit like having a strategic plan. Um, it... it it means so many things to so many people. The, a number of, 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 of points which I think are, are worth noting. Firstly, it costs money. It means spare capacity. It means investing in things that very often won't be used. And, and this is very, very difficult for governments, particularly governments in austerity. Uh, you have to put resources aside. For companies, it's working capital tied up. The shareholders hate that. Uh, it reduces the profits. Um, it's spare capacity in hospital beds, in oxygen bottles. It all costs money. And with the, with this, even if institutions haven't been privatized, they've been corporatized. The hospitals are judged on how much working capital they've got tied up. And so you have a choice. So it does cost money. And if governments believe in resilience, and if companies believe in it, they need to set aside the resources. And I believe that shareholders of companies um, and that citizens that are holding governments accountable should say, we don't mind if you have a stockpile of 50 million vaccines for something that might never happen or that you've got 10,000 beds too many, because we believe that that resilience is important, or that you have a wall uh, around a river which is only going to be used uh, perhaps every 100 years or 50 years, and of course with climate change more. So it costs money, and we need to uh, set aside money. The second is resilience against what? 
And this is where you get into the nonsense of risk management and probability theory saying, oh, this thing will not occur. It's a one in 500 year, one in 100 year. What we need to understand, and that's sort of what I, I, I try and get across in the butterfly defect, uh, is that these backward looking risk analyses are meaningless in a systemic risk world where the risks and probabilities of events are changing in dramatic ways, not only within the thing itself, like what is the probability of an extreme temperature today or a high wave today or a pandemic today, but it's spillovers to other sectors. What is the probability of a pandemic leading to a financial crisis or a hurricane in the North Atlantic leading to the collapse of Wall Street? And one has to work across silos. And then you start getting into a lot of possible sources of risk and a lot of areas of resilience, and that costs a lot of money. My own view is we need to do it. We need to do it not only in money, but psychologically, we need to prepare uh, to be more resilient. Uh, but we need to understand that this is going to be a trade-off between some sacrifices of consumption and tax in order to achieve it. And, and the final point I'd make is it can't be done at the national level alone. Resilience at the national level is a meaningless concept. Uh, we can be as resilient as we want and build as high walls as we want. It's not going to stop us from climate change, uh, pandemics and other things that come from elsewhere. And we're going to lose jobs in the process. So it needs to be done in a coordinated manner with others. You see, listening to you, Ian, it, 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 it might sound to, to somebody who's, who's, who's watching this and listening to this, well, this is impossible. You know, what governments, as you say, they're stretched. They want to win elections. People want short-term stuff. The idea that government's going to invest, you know, money in covering all the bases of all the possibilities and sharing sovereignty and all of that. But yet, but yet two things. The first is even covering all the bases, it's still a tiny proportion of the cost that is involved when things go wrong. So surely... You know, that's number one argument. You know, yes, it might have been cost six or eight billion, as I read in one report, to prepare the world properly for a pandemic. But my God, don't we wish we'd spent that money now? And then secondly, you know, a lot of policy conversations are very abstract. But, you know, I sit here in a house that is insured and it is insured for a set of things that I'm very, very confident aren't going to happen. But I understand the principle and I spend a few hundred quid every year i'm never going to get that money back i don't i don't eat it i don't drink it i don't go on holiday with it it's just poured away and at the end of the year i've got nothing to show for it but i understand the principle so it, it isn't beyond the wit of political leaders to get across the idea that a small amount of money now might save a lot of money in the future and that it's reasonable for societies to insure themselves Absolutely. And we do it all the time. Um, you've given the insurance example, which, of course, is, is, is absolutely right. Um, but it's also the case that it's in many, many other dimensions. You know, we look at how much money we set aside uh, with the Trident for Trident nuclear uh, deterrence capability that governments are setting aside to stop the next war, to build resilience against that sort of threat. NATO is another example Hopefully, these things aren't used, uh, but it's, we're prepared to do it for that, but not for a pandemic, which has a thousand times higher probability, uh, in my view, or multiples of that, than uh, having to use, say, a nuclear deterrent. Um, so we're prepared to do it for some things, partly because we're looking in the rearview mirror. Our frame of reference of threats is the Second World War uh, or the Cold War. It's not what's coming. So that's one problem. And as you say with insurance, and I've never understood the arguments around climate on, on this ground. We are prepared, if we think there's even a low risk of something happening, 
to set aside resources to stop it happening or to compensate if it does. And yet people who say, well, you know, there's still climate change deniers say, well, what if there's a 10% chance that you're wrong? Wouldn't you then act on it, even if there was only 10% chance of it happening? And, and so I think the risk framework with insurance is a good one to help people think about these things. Of course, uh, we can't prepare for all risks. Uh, there will always be surprises, but we should do our best uh, to be analyzing them. And certainly with pandemics, we can prepare uh, as we can for stopping climate change, as we can for antibiotic resistance and the other big risks that we know of. Uh, Ian, well, we can only hope that A, we get through this crisis and B, that there aren't, there isn't an Ian Golden and Matthew Taylor having this conversation in virtual reality in 30 years saying, well, why didn't I we see. learn from so. coronavirus? I'll, I'll break to that's that. All, <laughs> well, sadly, that's all we've got time for now, Ian. Thank you for talking to me, for giving such a lucid overview of how we got to where we are and what needs to change to move towards a better world, to build those bridges to the future. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Do keep up with the RSA's channels and social media feeds. We've got a vast archive of online content to engage and inspire, with plenty more due in the coming weeks, as well as our research centre and a 30,000-strong network of fellows all working to make the world a better place. Thank you again to Ian Golden, and thank you for watching, and do take care. <laughs>